0: Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stemcell. Our speaker today is Marissa Carodi from the uh, Institute for Conservation Research of the San Diego Zoo, which is based up at the Wild Animal Park. The genesis for inviting Marissa, other than the sheer interest of the topic, is that David Brenner and I were fortunate to go visit uh, this conservation or what I would call a molecular conservation effort up at the Wild Animal Park a few months ago. And there was a discussion about the need to have our folks interact with their folks uh, more regularly because there's a lot for each side to learn about the other. Uh, there's a very unique perspective that comes to species conservation that those of us trying to make organs for medical uses sometimes don't think about, and which I think is nonetheless an extremely important topic. Uh, species conservation is going to become a bigger and bigger issue as we get deeper into this century. and. If the folks uh, such as Marissa can figure out how to do this in a systematic way, we may be able to save some species that we otherwise wouldn't be able to, including the northern white rhino, which is the topic for today's uh, talk. Uh, Marissa's background is primarily in evolutionary biology. Uh, She got her bachelor's degree at Cal State Northridge. Interestingly, that uh, makes her a Californian by uh, history. I'm always happy with that. Uh, her degree was in environmental biology. And then she moved to Indiana State University, uh, uh, where she worked with Elena Tuttle for both her master's degree and her PhD degree. She received her PhD in 2013, oh, I, I need new glasses, apparently. Uh, <laughs> and uh, has, has been working up at the conservation effort ever since. And so let me hand the podium over to her. Uh, You'll hear an incredibly good seminar, is my guess, because this topic and their work is fascinating. So, Marissa. Thanks, Larry.
1: Thanks, Larry, and thanks, everyone, for coming out early in the morning here. And I'm very excited to be able to give you a little intro to our Northern White Rhino project that we're working at at the um, Institute for Conservation Research. This is really the first project that the zoo has gotten behind that's purely science for the sake of like pure research so all of our other applications have been field applications conservation in the field habitat conservation this time we're actually putting it directly behind pure research to actually figure everything out as we go along and you know as uh, larry said i did study birds um, for my phd so those are the first thing that are near and dear to my heart but the rhinos aren't too far away they have the same chromosome number 82 so that's the only link i have between what i used to do and what i'm doing now So basically, we're trying to save a species. So we need a lot of different things in our toolbox and I can't emphasize enough how lucky everyone is who works on human and mice. You have all of those tools available for you. We're about 20 years behind you. We do not have a reference genome. We don't have TaqMan probes that we can just order from Thermo Fisher to make our research easy. So as we dove into this project, we're really learning as we go along what we need to figure out to save the species. So lucky for us, we have rhino, rhino fibroblast cell lines. We need stem cell technology, which we got that in 2006. We need a high quality reference genome and transcriptomic analyses as well. So ultimately, to save the species, we wanna be able to go from what we have currently and we wanna be able to get to a living baby rhino. There are a lot of small steps in between. Ultimately, for my part of the project, we wanna get to gametes, which will then make in vitro embryos that we can transfer to a surrogate northern white rhino. So that's just kind of the nutshell of what I'm gonna cover today. Give you a little bit of background. So I do work at the Institute for Conservation Research. It's up at the San Diego Safari Park. We have eight different divisions up there at the group. So if there's anyone here who's looking for additional collaborations other than conservation genetics, we have several groups up there. We're working on multiple field projects, multiple reproductive science projects. We have a disease investigations group. We pretty much cover the whole breadth of science and conservation. Lucky for us, Up at the the, um, institute, we also have what's known as the frozen zoo. The frozen zoo was established in 1975 by Dr. Kirpanerska and Arlene Kumamoto. So within this collection, we have about 10,000 individuals represented as living cell lines. So we have cryopreserved fibroblast cell lines. Uh, We have about 1,100 species and subspecies that are represented. We also have um, blood, tissue, DNA, as well as um, oocytes and sperm cryopreserved. So why are we working on rhinos? Okay, all rhino species are endangered. This is where I get my soapbox. All, they're all endangered due to habitat loss and poaching. So almost all of them have been impacted by humans, and I don't know about everybody else here, but I really feel that we need to do something about this. It's our fault, we need to, to really help this species. So we're focusing in on the northern white rhino. There's two um, subspecies of white rhino. Northern only has two living individuals left, a mother and daughter where the southern white rhino has about 18,000. Both of these species have gone through severe genetic bottlenecks. The southern white rhino was able to recover from that. Northern white rhino, more habitat, more poaching. We have um, really no way of saving them through traditional conservation methods. So the southern white rhino, uh, as you can tell from the name, is down in the southern part of you know, South Africa, and then the northern white rhino is basically north of the Nile River. So um, they were separated; they're about 80, forty to eighty thousand years diverged. So distinct subspecies, and uh, slightly different areas of like ecological foraging um, type things. Um, so again, they're endangered. Um, I always like to have a little cartoon up there. Um, there. It's erroneously believed that the rhino horn has medicinal qualities. It's believed to have be aphrodisiac, maybe cure cancer. It's also a status symbol. So a lot of uh, cultures will like it for dagger handles or other forms of um, you know, like proof of wealth. Um, and the really sad thing is is it's just keratin. It's the same as your fingernails. You can cut it, and it'll grow back. You do not need to injure the rhinos in order to collect it. Unfortunately, the poachers will go out and do things like, let's see if this cursor will work, like this, where they will pre- practically take off the entire um, face of the rhino and leave them there to die. So we're trying to do everything we can about that. Unfortunately, it's such an economic boon for the individuals who are out there poaching that it's really hard to take that, you know, change that mentality. So, as I said, we're focusing in on the northern white rhino. So, um, about four years ago, the San Diego Zoo decided that they wanted to start the northern white rhino initiative. We got down to, I think at that point, we had four northern white rhinos left on the planet. And everyone went, uh oh, what are we gonna do about this? Traditional conservation methods haven't worked. What are we going to do to to fix this? So we kind of jumped in from all sides. We brought in six southern white rhino females in November of 2015. So these were young females brought in from the wild. We built our rhino rescue center at the safari park, and we brought these girls in, and they are a research herd. So we have these six girls that we are... um, we have keepers that are dedicated to training these animals. They are very well trained. They submit to blood draws, ultrasounds. Um, they're very friendly. It's like going up and meeting a big dog. They come right up to the fence. They want to have their ears scratched. They will do pretty much anything you ask if you give them treats and pets. So they're, It's really amazing that you have a, like a 5,000-pound dog. <laughs> so... Um, in order to outline exactly how we were going to save the northern white rhino, we had a group of scientists get together in Vienna in 2015, and we, um, this is the white paper that came out of that process. So they had like, a, a several-day meeting where they basically outlined every possible scenario we could follow in order to save the northern white rhino. And this is a diagram that came out of uh, that meeting, and this is published in that zoo biology paper. So basically, we have two different methods that we're approaching to save the northern white rhino. We have the natural gamete side, and we have the constructed gamete side. So the natural gamete side, that's our reproductive sciences group. Um, they're working on tracking the reproductive cycle of these females. So, you know, we're diving into this project, but nobody really knows what the reproductive cycle of a rhino is. How, you know, how many times do they ovulate? When do they ovulate? What are their triggers? Nobody knows that. So the reproductive sciences group has been working with these six rhinos. They stand, they do um, ultrasounds twice weekly on these rhinos. They've been able to monitor follicle development and they've been able to identify timing for induced ovulation and then identify the exact window when they will um, ovulate. And they've also done artificial insemination within that window. We have our live birth. Uh, Edward was born two months ago, so he was um, born through artificial insemination. We're expecting our next one next month in November. Um, So they've learned a lot about all of rhino reproduction as we're we're stuck in the lab. (laughs) They're all out there working with the rhinos. Um, But my team is working on the constructed gamete side. So this is what conservation genetics is focusing on. So... We have northern white rhino tissue stored in the frozen zoo. So we're gonna take those somatic cells, we're gonna generate induced pluripotent stem cells, take those to primordial germ cells, hopefully sperm and egg, do in vitro maturation, and then we'll pass them off to our reproductive sciences group where they'll do embryo um, development and transfer. So we do have a collaboration with an engineering group here at UCSD where they're working on an embryo transfer device. So um, again, we don't have any of the tools we need to work on a 5,000 pound rhino. You can't do artificial insemination with typical work that you would use for a horse or a cow. Everything needs to be modified for rhino. So we're just basically building everything as we go. So we have, we're lucky enough to have 12 northern white rhino fibroblast cell lines in the frozen zoo. So these cell lines have been collected since 1979. The oldest line that we're working with is Lucy. She was um, collected at her death in 1979. So if we didn't have the foresight of Dr. Bernerska to save these cell lines starting in 1975, we wouldn't be able to do the work that we're doing today. So every cell line we, d- we collect, you know, we have a very skilled group of cytogenesis that will set up the skin biopsy, grow fibroblast cell lines. Again, they're working on all different species. Everything needs to be optimized for each individual species. My colleague, Marlis, who um, started working, she was hired to figure out how to grow rhino fibroblast cell lines back in the 80s. Nobody knew how to grow rhino fibroblasts until then. She worked with a company, developed which medias and which um, small molecules will Um, facilitate the growth of rhino fibroblasts. Nobody knew what a rhino karyotype looked like until then. We did not know how many uh, chromosomes they had. So again, everything we're building as we go along. So the first question I get every time, you have 12 cell lines. Is that gonna be enough to save a species? We always hear about genetic bottlenecks. You know, Are we actually going to be able to do this? So we have uh, eight unrelated individuals that we have cell lines from, as well as four offspring. We did whole genome sequencing, so Illumina sequencing, of these eight individuals and four southern white rhinos. And um, we looked at the genetic variability. And um, one thing I want to point out is that we do have one hybrid cell line that's present in the frozen zoo. So this is a northern white rhino mother and a southern white rhino father. So we have southern white rhinos that we're going to use as surrogates. The fact that these species can hybridize means that we are pretty optimistic that they'll be able to carry an embryo cross species to term. So, okay, so are these 12 cell lines enough? So, the first thing we wanted to do is we had a postdoc, Dr. Tate Tunstall, come in and he did a, a, a sliding window SNP analysis of the whole genome sequence of these uh, 12 individuals. So, we have four southern white rhinos over here. Um, so, I swear there's four dots there. They are very, very similar. So, this species went through a bottleneck in the early 1900s, there were about 50 individuals left and probably a couple different family groups, so very mostly related individuals. So we lost a lot of genetic diversity during that bottleneck, whereas the northern white was a little bit more diverse in the poaching and habitat loss that we had. So we see a lot more genetic diversity that's been captured in the the cell lines that we have in the frozen zoo. So we're pretty optimistic that that's gonna be enough to save the species, but how does that relate? So, if you look at this graph here, northern white rhino and southern white rhinos both actually have more genetic diversity than you would see in, a, in humans. So, if we manage the population carefully, we should be able to bring back a stable population of northern white rhinos. We've taken that one step further, and my colleague, Dr. Erin Wilder, is looking at genetic load. Okay, so we want to look at the differences in um, the SNPs, whether or not they're synonymous or non synonymous. So, she's looked at the number of potentially. So we don't know whether these are actually coding, gene expression, the actual implications of these, but we do know that they are differences. So the northern white rhino does carry more um, genetic load than the southern white rhinos. However, if you look at the graph on the right, the the northern whites actually carry fewer of these mutations in homozygous state. So they only have one copy. So again, if we carefully manage these individuals, we should be able to avoid having too much genetic load, and the southern white rhino has come back to a successful 18,000-plus population. We can use their genetic load as a level, a measure, and um, keep our northern white rhino population below that. So... Okay, we have, we have enough genetic variability, so pre- you know, the next step we're thinking we want to jump in and we want to start making stem cells. However, as we've been going along, we've been learning, we really need a reference genome in order to do some of this work. The closest in, uh, species that has a, a good quality reference genome is the horse. So the horse is also an odd-toed ungulate, just like northern white rhinos. However, they're about 59 million years diverged. When we try to align any of our sequence data, we only get about 60% data back. So we are jumping off on a tangent and building a northern white rhino uh, reference genome. And I just want to point out that we're kind of throwing the kitchen sink at it. We're going at it with all the different technologies that we can get our hands on. We're trying to really build the highest quality reference genome that we can. And I just want to point out that there's um, two technologies in here, Oxford Nanopore technologies and BioNanogenomics, that I think are really useful for those of us in the stem cell field, because they have a couple of really special techniques um, and benefits to them. And we also have uh, several different cell lines and tissues that we're going to be using for the genome annotation. So Oxford Nanopore sequencing. We've been focusing on this very heavily for about the last three weeks. We've generated about three terabytes of data, I think. Um, So this is a relatively new technology that instead of basing it on fluorescently tagged nucleotides like you would do for like Illumina sequencing, you're actually reading an electrical current through a pore. So the benefit of this is that you can go back and reanalyze the data later as they develop new algorithms. So one of these new algorithms is methylation. So you can actually reread your nanopore data and pick out where the methylation locations are within the genome. So we're going to use this as a um, method of quantifying the level of methylation differences between our different cell types as we go through as a quality control and just as we can learn basically everything we can about uh, northern white rhino Fibroblasts, iPSCs. Um, We can also do direct RNA sequencing, so we can do full-length transcripts, so we can do isoform identification across different cell types, which will help us with um, doing our transcriptome assembly as well. And the other really cool technology that we're working on, and are um, very grateful to BioNano, who helped us out. They did a little pilot study to see if northern white rhino um, would work well on their platform, and it does. Um, so instead of doing genome sequencing, this is actually optical mapping. So you tag a six-base pair repeat that is fairly evenly distributed across the human genome, which they've now shown works pretty well in a lot of other species, and you can use it because it will actually, instead of um, getting caught on where there's a lot of high-repetitive areas in the genome, you can actually go across those areas. So you can get almost full-length chromosome arm sequences back from here. The caveat is you need to have a reference genome in which to align it to for their in silico digest, but it's um, very helpful. So we're using this as our um, backbone for our scaffolding. Um, You can also build haplotype-aware genomes with this technology. And one of the really interesting things is you can use structural variant detection as well. So our... um, We've done a couple uh, individuals with this technology, and we can see about 637 differences, um, just insertions, 562 deletions, and a couple different um, inversion breakpoints and duplications that are just unique to individuals. So these are about the same types of numbers that you would see in a human genome across individuals. This is another measure of genetic variability between individuals that we can use. And then the other thing that's really cool about this technology is you can use it as an in silico karyotype, basically. So rhinos are very difficult to karyotype. Probably um, there's very few people in the world who can do it. Um, They have a lot of very small acrocentric chromosomes, which means they are very short. And so it's almost impossible to G-band them. Only very, very few people can do it. Um, So it's really hard to use this as a quality control like you would do for normal uh, other cell lines. So we're using this as kind of a a pseudo-karyotype because you can get actual full-length chromosome arms from this, this technology. And the other interesting thing is we have three individuals within our cell line population that have a Robertsonian translocation. So you have two different chromosomes that have fused at the centromere, so they have an 81 karyotype instead of 82. We do not know what genes are included in this because the chromosomes are so small we can't actually identify which two chromosomes are involved in this translocation. So my hope is that once we have our um, annotation done for our genome, we'll be able to figure that out. So I want to know whether or not this is going to cause any fertility issues, any health issues in our population later, if it's something we need to avoid as we move forward with this project. So um, BioNano is actually able to identify this specific fusion, so the blue... Um, line in the middle there, that is the individual with the translocation, and the green on the top and the bottom are the two different uh, chromosomes that have fused from the other individual. And then one of the other things that I'm, I'm looking into since you know non-model species, we don't have copy number vari- variation you know, assays that we can easily do. We don't have SNP chips that we can use for rhinos. So I'm looking into using this BioNano data as a method of um, quantifying the stability of our cell lines as we move forward with this project. So we forced, uh, not forced, but we cultured an IPSC line up to passage 63 and compared it to its parent fibroblast cell line and we only see about 13 changes between those cell lines, which I've been told from human stem cell researchers that's a very low number. So um, what we do need to be aware of is that um, there are things like a 76 kb deletion that have shown up, but it's only in the heterozygous state. So these are things that we're going to have to look at and explore more closely as we move forward with the project and make sure that it won't cause any, any problems with our cell lines. Okay, so you all came to hear about uh, stem cells, so let's move on to actually reprogramming these guys into stem cells. So hopefully everyone here is is familiar with induced pluripotent stem cells. We knew we could make induced pluripotent stem cells from the northern white rhino. Um, We had a postdoc in 2009 that worked at the Scripps Research Institute that was able to reprogram a drill in a northern white rhino using lentivirus. However, that's an integrating viral vector. We're hoping to make embryos and live individuals in the future with these stem cells. We don't want to have viral vectors integrating into our genome. So we worked on identifying uh, non-integrating methods that we could use for this. And we found that Sendai actually works decently well on rhinos. So now we use the non-integrating Sendai virus to reprogram these stem cells. And um, this is a representative of what our northern white rhino stem cells look like. If you're familiar with mouse and human. They look a little bit different. We do have a little bit more uneven edges. We do not have the naive domed shape that the mouse cells do, Um, but we're pretty confident that we have stable cell lines. And I just need to give a big shout out to my two um, associates, Sarah and Tom. They are there seven days a week. So somebody is in our lab every day and I couldn't do any of this work without their help. So here's a representation of what our fibroblasts look like. They're a little bit different than than humans. Um, And then we do have feeder-free stem cells as well as the feeder stem cells. Again, we have a little bit different morphology. Our cells are a little bit more stable on the feeder-free condition. We don't need to use rock when we do single-cell passaging. Um, So they're like kind of in between mouse and human uh, characteristics for stem cells. Okay, so we're pretty confident that those are all stem cells. You know, we've worked with them enough. We've cultured them a long time. They all have pretty much the same morphology. We're pretty confident they're stable. But we wanted to go and, um, you know, prove to reviewers that we really do have pluripotent stem cells from northern white rhinos. So we've, um, again, non-model species. We tested several antibodies, but we did come up with a suite of antibodies um, for canonical pluripotency markers that do work in rhino. And then we've also followed up with quantitative PCR. So every primer we had to design specifically for Rhino, sometimes two, three, four times in order to get primers that would work. But we are pretty confident in our pluripotency markers here. And one thing that we do see is that we have very low expression of KLF4, which is also similar to the human iPSCs and opposite of the mouse. So we've gone one step further, and this is um, work done by my colleague Inigo. Um, we're just, this is just pilot data, data, so all of this is, is really new. Um, so, we're actually quantifying the amount of pluripotent uh, markers between human and rhino, just to give us a kind of standard between the two species. And we do see similar levels of um, pluripotency across um, OCT4 and SOX2 between human and northern white rhino IPSCs. We're going a step further, and we've done a lot of RNA-seq analyses on all of our, um, our data. So um, this is, again, very preliminary data, but we do have um, PCA analysis showing the parent fibroblast cell lines compared to the iPSCs. And we do have a lot of variability within the fibroblast cell lines that is um, removed once we reprogram those into the stem cells. And again, these cell lines have been collected across the last 40 years. So there were different biopsy sites, different uh, cell cultures, different cell media. Um, So there's a lot of variability within those fibroblasts. And then we've done... um, some further analyses, and you can see the top 10 um, differentially expressed genes in the iPSCs, as well as in the fibroblasts. And we do have um, OCT4, LIN28, SAL4, um, CDH1, that are all very robust markers of pluripotency in northern white rhinos. Um, So again, another little pilot study that we're working on. So we wanted to confirm that we have similar energy production methods between our stem cells and human stem cells. So this is just a a pilot study where we looked at oxidative phosphorylation. We see very low levels of, of that in human and northern white rhino, which you would expect in stem cells, and high levels of glycolysis. So the next step, we wanted to make sure that our stem cells could differentiate. So we generated embryoid bodies. Uh, we did uh, about two-week differentiation. So we started with our aggregate culture for seven days and a plated culture for an additional seven days. And we do see markers of all three germ layers. So we have mesoderm, endoderm, and ectoderm. And I get tears every time I mention this. These are um, early neurons from NOLA. She was the last northern white rhino that we had living at the safari park. So that is now our favorite picture ever. (laughs) (laughs) So again, we uh, generated quantitative PCR um, primers and checked for additional markers of germ layer differentiation. And we also see significant levels of mesoderm, endoderm, and ectoderm. We've taken that one step further and we were very fortunate to have a um, summer fellow, uh, Ginny Wu, that was a UCSD a bioinformatics undergraduate student, and she helped us a lot developing some bioinformatics pipelines, including some unsupervised hierarchical clustering. And so this is just a representation of one of the analyses she ran while she was with us over the summer. We've done some time point differentiations from our embryoid bodies, different um, two, four days in suspension, two, four, and seven days plated. And you can see a change, uh, a distinct trend in the, dif- the differentiation across the time point. So again, we don't really know anything about rhino embryo development. We don't know timing. So the in vitro versus the in vivo, we're really trying to explore the differences in timing and be able to compare that to mouse and human. So we have like a reference of what we're we're looking for. So we also did a directed cardiac differentiation. So these are cardiomyocytes generated from Angelifu. He was the last male northern white rhino that we had living at the safari park. Um, so we do have again quantitative PCR and ICC staining, but beating cells in a dish is pretty pretty definitive. I think that was one of the happiest days in the lab. We pulled everybody out of the hallway as we were um, had had the first day. You know, it's like come see what we did. Um, so this was a off the shelf kit from Thermo Fisher human cardiomyocyte differentiation kit. So yes, it's very exciting to have beating cells in a dish, but what it really proved to us was that some of these developmental pathways are conserved between rhino and human. The fact that this human kit worked exactly according to protocol, almost exactly according to the same timeline as it does in humans, gave us a lot of hope that all of our future experiments would follow at least closely to human, if not exactly. We're hoping exact, but we're not gonna be that lucky. Okay, so hopefully I've convinced you that we have um, stable northern white rhino induced pluripotent stem cells. So we've so far been able to generate nine northern white rhinos and two southern white rhinos, so we're using that as controls. Um, So ultimately, we want a baby rhino. So the next step is we want to look into making primordial germ cells. So um, primordial germ cells um, can spontaneously differentiate uh, within the embroid bodies. So that was our first step. We examined those those EBs to see um, if we could see any sort of signature of primordial germ cells. So on the right, we have our ICC. Um, PDPN is a cell surface marker that is conserved between human and cinnamologous monkey PGCs. So those have been traced in cinnamologous monkey development. And then SOX17 is one of the first genes that turns on in the human PGC developmental pathway. So we have co-localization of just a few cells within these EBs that are dual positive for both of these genes. So we're pretty optimistic that these are PGCs. So there's only a few. We would expect about 5% or less of the cells within each EB to be primordial germ cells. That's what they see in humans. Um, so we've also checked a couple other markers. So again, we don't know what markers are going to work with rhino. So we're just kind of doing some preliminary pilot studies to see what we can come up with. And we do see uh, TNAP and CD38 in very, very low expression levels, um, which is also human markers for primordial germ cells. So you know, very low numbers but that's again what we would expect, and TNAP actually is very highly expressed, unfortunately, in, human, or in rhino iPSCs unlike end um, fibroblasts, so you know, unlike in humans where you can use that as a stem cell marker when you're doing reprogramming, we can't do that in rhinos, so the fact that it's in such a low amount in these EBs actually leads me to believe that it would be a good marker to use for them in rhino. Okay, so We think our cells are capable of making them. We think they're making them spontaneously. The next step was to go in and make sure that we could do it when we want to. We wanted to do a directed PGC differentiation. So there's a few labs out there that are working on this in human and mouse. We've seen them do the entire in vitro um, PGC to oocyte maturation in vitro fertilization and transfer to mouse in 2016. So we know it's possible, but how well does that translate to other species? They're only about halfway there in human, and so we're just trying to kind of mix and match those protocols between mouse and human and and apply it to rhino. So basically, in mice, they believe that the PGCs develop from the epiblast. In humans, they believe it's coming from the incipient mesoderm, or primitive streak. Um, They're not really sure. Embryo research in humans is very hard to come by, and in rhinos, it's going to be non-existent. So we're just kind of taking a stab. So what we're working with is protocols from uh, Kyoto University that they start with primed induced pluripotent stem cells and they induce an incipient mesoderm like state and then they do a primordial germ cell differentiation. So this is about a 42 hour step for this incipient mesoderm. That can vary depending on your um, cell line and there's a clonal variation as well as potentially a sex difference. Um, So we need to test all of those in in our rhino. Lucky for us, the PGC differentiation is highly conserved between mouse and human. So they use the exact same four factors in the mouse protocols as they do in the human protocols. So we're pretty optimistic that those will work for us in rhinos as well. So we've gone a step further from the original... a paper that was published in 2015 where they did a 42-hour induction with this pre-induction state where they're using a GSK3 inhibitor um, cure. And we're testing two additional protocols where they're substituting in Wnt3A protein or they're actually doing the GSK3 inhibitor and an FGF inhibitor. And so the first thing we did is, again, we don't know timing in vitro for rhinos compared to humans. So we did the the protocol exactly as published. We did a 42-hour pre-induction step and a 6-day PGC induction step in aggregate cells. And we see uh, across the time points a little bit of a a peak at day 7 in the the genes that we're looking for. So NANOS3 is a definitive PGC marker. Here's SOC17, which is that first Gene that's turned on in the human pathway, and we do see markers of um, naive pluripotency and some other ones that we do not see in our um, stem cells to begin with. Um, so, the human protocol calls for six days, so we're thinking we might need to expand the, the time frame for the rhinos, but we're still working on this. So, again, this is all very new data. So, the next thing we tried was um, comparing the three different uh, in pre-induction media's that they um, have published, so we're calling them IML one, two, and three. We see a distinct difference in the cell morphology. So this is a 42-hour pre-induction step. So IML one still looks pretty much like the the regular induced pluripotent stem cells from the rhino. IML2 has a little bit higher growth rate, um, so this one does have the Wnt3a protein added. And then IML3, we see a lot more cell death and a lot more difference in the morphology. However, what's really important is these aggregates that are formed that we do in culture for six days. So this is where the PGCs will be developing. And we see much better um, aggregate formation in the IML3. Okay, this is organized chaos. This is hot off the press. We still do not know what it means. So we have three different IMLs as well as three different time points. So the um, original protocol calls for 42 hours, but they suggest that you can go up to 60 hours of that pre-induction step for difficult cells to um, induce into PGCs. So we have all three of those on here. So we broke those out and on IML one, So, And I'm happy to discuss all of this with anybody later because we are still trying to tease all of this apart and see what it it actually means. Um, We see IML1, the um, time points don't really seem to make a difference. Um, However, we do see some difference in the PGCs that are developed. IML2, we see a a definite difference in the um, different timing as well as IML3. And one thing I didn't point out on this one here is that the PGCs and the pre-induction step on IML3 all cluster together. So we're not really sure if we're sending them too far down that mesoderm-like state and they're not generating PGCs, or maybe we are hitting that exactly and getting a lot of PGCs. Not really sure yet. We also have one more caveat. We have the, the two samples that we're working with are a male and a female, so we do see very different expression levels between the males and the females and in the reverse order. (laughs) So we're not really sure if this is just an inter um, individual difference or if this is a sex difference. So we're working on expanding this uh, study to include a few more samples so that we can kind of tease apart what's going on. We are optimistic, however, because again, we're back at the very beginning of all of this work. Um, We do see some of the expression patterns that the um, first papers did in the mouse world. So we're seeing some um, embryonic morphogenesis and um, embryonic development showing up in our PGCs. So it's really hard to tease apart exactly what's going on in these cells because we don't have those good markers to actually sort the cells. So our next step on uh, with all of this will be to generate reporter lines so that we can actually fact sort these cells and identify um, the PGCs. So again, back to the genome, we can't really make reporter lines if we can't design guide RNA in order to CRISPR in our reporter lines. So that's what we're gonna be working on next. Okay, Um, and so this is just kind of an overview. Hopefully I've convinced you that we have enough genetic diversity in our frozen zoo in order to save the northern white rhino. do pretty successful in reprogramming those fibroblasts into induced pluripotent stem cells. It's a very um, long and tedious process. We have a lot lower success rate than those working on humans do. Um, and it takes about three months for us to get to a stable cell line point. Um, hopefully I've convinced you that they, that we've successfully validated these IPSCs. We've used several different methods of quantifying these um, cell lines and we're pretty confident in all of our, our data. Um, we have our Primordial germ cells, we have spontaneously generated ones, and we're also pretty confident that we're generating um, them with the directed differentiation protocol. Um, again, this is going to take a lot more work. There's a lot of very small steps in this process, and it's still we're still at the very beginning of this whole program. And then ultimately, we want to get to gametes. We do not know how we are going to do that yet. They still don't know how to do that in humans, Um, Mouse, they do it through a reconstituted ovary where you can do a co-culture, you know, in vitro, develop them. Um, We need to figure out how to actually make those support cells in vitro. They use um, embryonic somatic cells from mouse in order to do it in mouse. We will never have embryonic somatic cells from rhino in order to do this. So we need to figure out how to do that in vitro as well as make the primordial germ cells in vitro. So there's still a lot to go. Hopefully I gave you a little bit of a flavor of everything that we've been tackling. We've been only working on this part of the project for about the last three years. So um, we've made quite a bit of progress in that short amount of time and we're diving forward with the remainder. Um, And with that, I just need to thank everybody that has been involved in this process. We have a very supportive group at the San Diego Zoo Global. Just overall, our development team and all of the other people that are involved on the project, none of this would be possible without all of the keepers, the reproductive sciences groups. This is really a huge team effort across the entire society. Um, and then all of the cell culturists who did all of the the wonderful fibroblast banking, and then all of our collaborators that are helping us with the the genome. So that's not something that we are skilled with at the Institute, and so we are really looking for help with any sort of um, assembling and annotation. So thanks for listening.